says Psalm 16, but we're going to start in Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I imagine a young David. I don't know exactly when David wrote Psalm 8. We know that he did, but I don't know when. I I imagine he was young. I imagine still in the place of a young shepherd there in the shepherd's fields of Bethlehem, leaning back on his arm on the rocky ground, looking up at the night sky. His sheep dotted on the hills around him and just looking up, considering the the heavens above him, the beauty of the stars, the handiwork. And as he begins to ponder these things, he considers the astonishing contrast between the eminence of God, who is majestic, and then, amazingly enough, the exaltation of man who God crowns with majesty. And that's the contrast in the psalm. The first few verses speak of the eminence of God. O Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, new Adonai. How majestic is your name? He begins and ends with that. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries, which I think is kind of cool because what that's saying is the adversary may be strong, but even babies know who God is. You know, even the little ones are praising you. That's got to drive the enemy nuts. But it's all about the imminence of God. And then all of a sudden, David realizes, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. It almost doesn't make sense that glorious God would lift up man would exalt man in all of his creation. It's almost too great to fathom. David seeming to make sense of it all, that the the graciousness of the maker of stars, who would crown mortal man with an even brighter glory than the stars in the heavens. But Psalm 8's a tough one, because as you know, we're going through Savior Psalms. This was one I just wanted to read because I love Psalm 8. But it's not technically really a Savior Psalm. Not by the definition that I'm using. There are about 20, maybe 21 or 22 in all, that are Psalms of the Savior. Psalms that are either Jesus speaking, or they are directly about Jesus. And Psalm 8 doesn't quite get there, although some people try to say that it does. It really doesn't. Now Jesus does quote from Psalm 8, but he's not the Son of Man. See, that's what we do. We see phrases like Son of Man and our Christian heads immediately ping to, oh, Son of Man, that must be Jesus. Well, not necessarily. Ezekiel was called Son of Man through his prophecy. So it's, it's not speaking of Jesus when he says the Son of Man that you care for him, and I can, I can show that to you. But while this psalm is not about Jesus directly, and it's not Jesus speaking specifically, it is inspired by Him, as all of the Hebrew Scriptures are. And He does quote from Psalm 8, and it's an interesting choice that He makes. In fact, Psalm 8 is referred to four times in the New Testament. You might just want to jot these down. We're going to move through this quickly, and then we'll get on to Psalm 16. But four times in the New Testament, and the first time it's quoted by Jesus. And what happened was he was in the temple courts and he was healing and he was doing marvelous things. And the chief priests and the scribes started to notice that the children in the area were shouting in the temple. Well, no right-minded church member is going to tolerate that. 
children shouting at church. Quiet them down. You know, I thought it was so beautiful, and I don't even know whose child it was. I'm, I'm thinking it was Zephaniah. Was it? Yep, there she is. During worship, did you hear? We're singing, We Exalt Thee, and I'm hearing from the back corner. I stopped singing because it was so beautiful, and I just wanted to hear the whole fellowship singing, We Exalt Thee, and I hear, From the mouths of infants and babes, you have ordained praise. And it's beautiful. And this is going on in the temple. The children are praising Him. They're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And we're told in Matthew 21, 15, they became indignant and said to Him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now, it's a slightly different take because he's quoting from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we read the Hebrew Scriptures in what's called the Masoretic Text. But the idea is here, and Jesus is quoting from that verse, from Psalm 8, verse 2. What's amazing, did you get that? I mean, think about what Jesus just said. Listen again. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? That was Jesus' answer to the children worshiping and praising in the temple. So, so as the recipient of the praise, Jesus identifies himself not with the Son of Man in the psalm, but with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That is who I am, Jesus is saying. That's who he aligns himself with. He says in the temple courts, in this response to the Pharisees, and it would have sent them right through the roof. His response is, haven't you ever heard of the psalm that declares my praise? That I am, O Lord, our Lord? He called himself God in that moment. If he is anywhere in Psalm 8, it's in the first three verses and it's in the ninth verse. Which again reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your name, Yahweh. Your name, Yeshua. The second place we hear this psalm quoted in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to encourage you to go over there just for a moment. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bibles. About verse 25. Okay, well, while you're turning, I'll start in verse 20 because it's so good. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But, when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And I'm sure Paul knew exactly what he was saying, but those receiving it in Corinth were like, huh? (laughs) Can you explain this, Paul? (laughs) And if you read it, it may sound as if Paul is saying that Jesus is the Son of Man in Psalm 8. That he's quoting back to refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. But listen, and get this, it's it's a subtle nuance, but it's important. Paul isn't quoting Psalm 8, verse 5, to say that it is fulfilled in Jesus, but to say that it is fulfilled by Jesus. David's intent with Psalm 8, is to declare beneath that dazzling starry sky the eminent God who exalts the puny man. Jesus, who is the perfect man, made that exaltation possible. Indeed, He made it a reality by His resurrection. So He makes it possible for the psalm to be fulfilled. It's not fulfilled in Jesus, but by Jesus. He does the work to make the fulfillment of the psalm possible. Have I completely lost you? 
Let me let Gordon Fee see if he can maybe explain it to you out of this commentary. Excellent thoughts on this. He said, Paul's thinking is thoroughly eschatological. He understood both the death and resurrection of Christ and the subsequent gift of the Spirit. Paul understood these as eschatological realities. That is, end-time realities. He recognized in those events, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that God had set in motion the events of the end. The fact that the resurrection had already taken place within history meant to Paul that the end had been set inexorably in motion. Christ's resurrection, get this, and here's the answer to it. Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection. Christ's resurrection did what was necessary to kick wide open the door for our resurrection so that Psalm 8 then could be fulfilled. Fulfilled how? The exaltation of man. That God exalts, He crowns with glory and honor. And that has not yet happened. Though Jesus has already been crowned with glory and honor, Jesus has already resurrected, but it's His resurrection that makes your resurrection and my resurrection possible. And Paul alludes to this again. This is the third time that we see this mentioned or alluded to in the New Testament. That is Psalm 8 in Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So in a manner of speaking, Christ coming as the Son of Man, yes, all things are in subjection to Him because He's the perfect man. But everything in Psalm 8 of the exaltation of man is fulfilled by what Jesus did. The psalm isn't about Jesus, but it is about us being exalted because Jesus was first exalted in His resurrection. point is this. Jesus, the perfect man, brings the fulfillment of Psalm 8, which as of this night remains unfulfilled. We are still puny man, puny women. We have not yet been resurrected. Therefore, the psalm is not yet fulfilled, even though Jesus has fulfilled it. The Hebrew pastor explains it even further. So go further to the right to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 6. And this is the fourth reference to Psalm 8 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. The Hebrew pastor says, But one has testified somewhere, saying, and this is Psalm 8, verse 4 through 6, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the work of your, works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But the Hebrew pastor says, For in in subjecting all things to him, that is mankind, he, that is Jesus, left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. In other words, the psalm is not fulfilled. It has not happened yet. It will happen. All things will become in subjection once humanity, once followers of Jesus, once that exaltation happens in our resurrection. In other words, for Psalm 8 to be fulfilled, we must be exalted. You get that? For Psalm 8 to be fulfilled, we must be exalted. And we will be. We will be. That's the joy, the hope with Psalm 8. Now, Going back there, I I struggled with including Psalm 8 at all because, as I said, while I love it, by strictest definition, it's not technically a Savior psalm. It does mention the Savior, just not as the Son of Man. The Savior in the psalm is, O Lord, our Lord. Psalm 16. If you turn there in your Bibles, you'll notice first off that this is called a miktam of David. A miktam is... A word that's used six times in the Bible, all in conjunction with David. They're all miktam le David. And there are six miktams in the Psalms. No one really knows what a miktam is, what specifically it means. There's a similar Hebrew word to miktam that some think, well, maybe it's tied to that word, and that word means gold or precious. So something of, of great value. Well, perhaps. 
these six psalms, including Psalm 16 and Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. Perhaps these six psalms are just precious. Some say maybe they were part of a volume of just those six altogether at one point. That David kind of collected them together and called them his precious psalms or his golden psalms, perhaps. In Arabic, there's a word maktum, and that means something hidden or secret. Possibly a golden psalm, a a, a secret or a hidden psalm. Others say it comes from an old Akkadian verb, which is katamu, which means to cover. So there are six covering psalms. What does that mean? Some think atonement. These psalms are maybe their atonement psalms. The problem is that's not the theme of any of the psalms. They're not about atonement. What are they about? Well, what's interesting is every one of these six psalms are written under conditions of distress. Psalm 16, Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60 are all psalms where David is crying out in some kind of distress or another. With the later miktoms, we get a sense, we can know this is what was going on at the time. With Psalm 16, we have no idea what was happening in David's life. We don't know why he wrote it. All we know is that it's a psalm of distress. So that is a theme that runs through all six of these. So perhaps it's not covering as an atonement. It's covering the lips in silence. In fact, what Kidner says is that Psalm 16, 56 through 60 should have headings that read a silent prayer of David. That Psalm 16 and the others are silent prayers. They come from a place of such deep distress that they're not the kind of prayer that you would pray out loud. They're not the kind of prayer that you would share in a group. They're the prayer that you would pray under your breath. Or a prayer prayed in silence. A prayer that is a cry of the heart rather than a cry of the lips because of the sensitive hardship nature of these psalms. And again, we don't know what David was going through or what he faced as he wrote this miktam, but it doesn't really matter because it's not his voice we hear. Psalm 16 is the voice of Jesus. Psalm 16, and you will see why, is Jesus in what we might consider to be silent prayer. Jesus in distress. This is what I would call a miktam of the Messiah. And if you want to keep your finger there, turn over to the book of Acts. Peter, that Galilean fisherman, is is now preaching. And picking up in Acts 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him... I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And that's Psalm 16. The last several verses of that psalm. Peter says, this is Jesus. This is referring to Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. And I read Psalm 16 and I hear a precious, hidden, silent prayer. And I'm going to push it a step further. I don't want to be dogmatic about this tonight, but I want you to understand the perspective I'm coming from. When I read Psalm 16, I personally believe what we hear is the prayer Jesus silently prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus in the garden. I headed into these psalms this summer thinking I wanted to walk by quiet waters. And I wanted to be led to green pastures. And I wanted to have my soul restored. And here we are right at the beginning and we find ourselves in a beautiful garden. If you've ever seen it. Olive trees, 
on the side of the Mount of Olives looking across to Jerusalem, held up above a valley, the Kadron Valley. It's, it's a beautiful spot on the earth. And in that garden, Jesus prayed. He prayed many times in that garden, but one in particular, one night that you are very familiar with, the night of His betrayal. And from that garden, the Gospels don't give us much of what He said. A few single lines, a few words here, a few words there, but not much in terms of entire prayers. So from the Gospels, we can't say, these are all the things Jesus prayed. We know He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. That's about as much as we get from the Gospels. But we may have more right here from Psalm 16. If you listen closely in Psalm 16, you will hear Jesus' prayer of trust in distress. You will hear the Christ cry out by faith in affliction, confidence while facing the very cross itself. Verse 1 begins, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. I can hear Jesus praying these words from the garden as He pled for His very life. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 5-7, In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with crying and tears, loud crying and tears, to the One able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety, because of His godly fear. I've always found that passage interesting. Hebrew writer says, He cried out from the garden, and He was heard. And I think, how's that possible? If He indeed prayed what we read in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. Save me. And the Hebrew pastor says, His prayer was heard, and yet you and I know He was arrested in that garden, carried through six trials, and led out ultimately to Calvary where He was crucified. How can you say, writer of the book of Hebrews, he was heard because of his piety? Listen, just because the answer you're looking for is not the one you get doesn't mean that you're not heard. When you're praying, when you're crying out to God, just because He doesn't answer the way you want to be answered doesn't mean He hasn't heard you. And you know, I was thinking about this. Often when we... When we are hurting and we go to talk to someone about that, the whole idea is we just want to be heard. You ever been in that place? You're not looking for an answer. You're not looking for someone to solve something. You just want to be heard. You just want someone to understand that, you, that you're hurting or you're in distress. We don't want advice. Just, just And Cheryl will say this to me. Don't, don't tell me what to do. Don't fix it, Rick. Just, just hear me. We just want to know that we're heard. My friends, the same thing with prayer. What we need to know more than any other thing is that we have been heard. That God hears us. And the answer may not be what we expect. But He hears us. He promises that He does. In 1 John 5.14, John said, This is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And as we ask, the answer may not be what we think or the way we think it should look. That's not the point. The point is that we're heard by the Father. And as Jesus cried out in the garden, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Well, the cup did not pass from Him, but He was heard. He was heard clearly. John says in 1 John 5.15, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Again, maybe not the way we think, but He hears you. He hears you. He hears you. I hope you don't miss this point. When you cry out in prayer to God, He hears you. The test is not what He does with your prayer. The test is not how He answers. Know by faith that He hears you. He is not ignoring you. In fact, God heard and preserved Jesus just as Jesus prayed. Not from the cross, but through the cross. Not from the grave, but through the grave. Not from death, but through death, God preserved Him. He was heard. The prayer was answered. 
You might say, I might say, well, why did he go to the cross? He went through the cross, through the grave, and came right out the other side, preserved forever. Preserved in life. God did answer this very prayer. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, verse 2, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. In other words, he says, I said to Yahweh, you are my Ani Adonai. I said to Yahweh, you're my Lord, you're my Lord. It's it's incredibly personal. Ani Adonai means mine. There's ownership here. You're my Lord. And I think it's interesting how he says, I have no good besides you. Now, Jesus in the garden, praying before the Lord, what other good did he have? There was none. There was no other good besides God. Jesus prayed there and the disciples snored. And Judas betrayed and the Jewish leaders plotted and the soldiers suited up. Jesus had no other good but God Himself. Sometimes we got to get to the point of no good besides God. So we're crying out in our distress and struggling in the things of life. Sometimes God is allowing all that would seem good to us to vanish away. So the only good we have left is Jesus. So that like Peter, we can say, to whom else can we go? There is no other good. Sometimes we have to get there before we finally will trust in Him. We call it getting to the end or coming to the end of yourself. Where there's no good in your life, nowhere else to turn, nothing else you can do, but, but turn to the Father who you know is good. Psalm 73, I thought it interesting, Rachel, how you began tonight, because she was talking about just being near to God. Near to God. Psalm 73, 28 says, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Truly in this life, that's all I need to get from today to tomorrow. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And what Jesus modeled for us both in His life, in the garden, and all the way to the cross was the abiding goodness of God. I have no other good but I have You, Lord. And you can hear that on the lips of Jesus there in the garden. Verse 3, He says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. That word saints is holy ones. In the Greek, we talked about it a lot. In the New Testament, the word hagios, saints, always talks about God's people. But in the Old Testament, it can either be God's people or it can be heavenly beings. In fact, that word kedosim for holy ones or saints translated here is oftentimes heavenly beings. And so he adds this phrase, As for the saints who are in the earth, to be clear about who he's talking about. He's not talking about heavenly beings. He's talking about saints who are in the earth. No, not pushing up daisies. He's not talking about dead saints. As for the dead saints, that's not the point here. As for the saints who are in the earth, he's talking about the people of God on the planet. And, And if this is David writing, he's saying, boy, I delight in holy people. I love to be around the people of God. I love to be with people who really want to be and are pursuing righteousness. You know why? Because it affects me. Their righteousness gets on me. And my righteousness, if I'm pursuing that, gets on them, which is why Christian fellowship is of such great value. But again, think of Jesus here. As He's praying in the garden, delighting in those who are what He would call majestic and noble because they are Holy. Not a whole lot of holiness going on around Jesus at that moment. Not a whole lot. We know, again, the closest ones to Him are schnoozing. (laughs) And then all the rest are either ignorant of Him or are ready to come and arrest Him. But the saints, the holy ones of God, I delight in them, He's saying. He calls them noble and majestic and mighty. And these are, are those who, who love the Lord and who desire righteous things. And in a world that tends more and more to denigrate the saints, to make fun of people who pursue righteousness, 
to drag down the holy ones? Jesus says, oh no. No, these are the noble ones of the earth. These are the majestic ones. These are the mighty ones. Those who pursue righteousness. Remember what he said in Psalm 8, verse 5? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, but you crown him with glory and majesty. Hey, the crowning is coming. But in the eyes of Christ, and get this, the more saintly, the more majestic. The more good, the more glorious. The more holy a person is, the more delightful they are to Jesus. And you need to understand this. Righteousness, as we talk about it here, is not just good for you. Be righteous. Be holy, the Lord says, as I am holy. But it's not just for you. It's not just good for you. Righteousness is not just good for the church. Righteousness is not just good for the kingdom. Righteousness delights Jesus. He just loves it. He loves when people are righteous, when they're good, when they're pursuing the right thing, when they're doing the right thing. It brings delight to Jesus. I mean, I can just imagine him. Look at what she just did. Angels, come here. Check this out. Look at that act of kindness. Look at his compassion. Look at her humility. Oh, this is just great. Look at my people being my people. So the next time you have a decision between a righteous action or an unrighteous one, maybe some of the motivation can be that it brings delight to Jesus. It just puts a smile on His face. The saints who are in the earth. Holy ones. What about those who are not holy? What about those in the earth who are far from it? You know what? In the garden, Jesus was thinking about them too. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Matthew chapter 10 verse 32. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. You want to have your name on his lips? Have His name on your lips. That's how it works. But bartering for another God, He says here, or pouring out drink offerings of blood, what's that about? He's alluding to paganism. He's alluding to those who reject God and righteousness for pagan ideals. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? 1 Kings 18.28 says they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. That's pagan behavior. I'm so glad we don't do that at the bridge. Think about this. If this is in fact Jesus praying in the garden, if we are hearing those overtones, and if in fact Jesus in the garden prayed something along the lines of the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied and I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Get this. Jesus may have said that while sweating His own blood. Because His own blood is the only blood that can save. And all the the pagans slashing themselves and cutting themselves, all the pagan child sacrifices... All the things that people do to try and prove their own worth and value. Jesus in the garden, sweating blood out of His capillaries, says, I will not endorse, nor will I accept any other blood of vain worship. I don't accept that. Do you? Do you ever say, well, I don't agree with him or her. I don't like what they're doing, but I'll respect and tolerate the, their beliefs. That's okay. However bogus or false, I'm just going to accept and be okay with whatever anyone around me thinks or believes or does. I remind you, and I've reminded you of this before. Romans 1.32, Paul said, Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same themselves, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul has just gone through a litany of abominations before God. Things that God is not okay with. 
You are living, and young people especially, you are living in a culture that is okay with all kinds of things. A culture that would tell you, you can be a follower of Jesus, and you can be any kind of gender you want. You can engage in any kind of sexual behavior you want, and still be a follower of Jesus, and it's fine. You can be Christian and be that. It's not a big deal. And what's being pressed upon the church and on followers of Jesus today is, are you going to give approval of those things? Jesus doesn't. He just doesn't. Well, why not? Why isn't Jesus more tolerant then? Because Jesus knows if he approves of sinful behavior, he's approving of behavior that will condemn someone to hell. And he will not approve of that. He approves of those who trust in His blood and not in their own. Jesus is, and I can say this with absolute assurance for all the grace and love and mercy that we see in Christ Jesus, He is intolerant of false belief systems. He does not accept them. Because neither the blood of the deceiver or the blood of the deceived can save anyone, only, as Peter put it, 1 Peter 1.19, precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is all that can save us. Verse 5. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance, and note this, and my cup. You support my lot. And if you haven't yet arrived at Gethsemane, listen up. Matthew 26, 39 says he went a little beyond the disciples and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I mean, in the psalm he says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Yeah, Jesus had two cups before him that night in the garden. Two cups. You ever have to take some really nasty medicine? And it's in one cup, and so you pour another cup of juice or soda or just something to wash it down as quickly as possible. Jesus had two cups. He faced the cup of God's wrath. And so He said, Father, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Let this wrath pass from Me. That's the cup He did not want to drink. The cup He prayed against. But He had another cup before Him that night as well. And it was the cup of His portion. The cup of His inheritance, which is the Lord. So even as He looked at the cup of God's wrath, He also was looking at God Himself. Even as He looked at the cup that would take Him straight to the grave, He's looking at the Father who could take Him through the grave to life eternal. And Jesus understood He had to drink the first cup, the cup of wrath, to receive the second cup, the cup of inheritance. And it was the second cup that allowed him to swallow the first. That nasty tasting, horrific cup of the wrath of God that Jesus would drink to the dregs. But he knew he had another cup. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. David said the same thing, Psalm 119.57, The Lord is my portion. Jeremiah said, Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. And by the way, both of those quotes, along with Psalm 16, are coming out of times of distress. Jeremiah, after watching all Jerusalem burn down, and his beloved Judah destroyed by Babylon, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion. Therefore I have hope in Him. David cries, the Lord is my portion. Jesus knew on the night of betrayal that though he had to drink the cup of the wrath of God, he also had the cup of his portion, his inheritance, which is the Lord himself. But this second cup also yields something else in the inheritance. You see, on that night, just across the Cadron Valley, just roughly an hour before, Jesus had told his friends, Matthew 26, 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The cup of inheritance. The cup of celebration. The cup of joy that Jesus is waiting even today to drink in the kingdom, listen, don't miss this, with you and with me. And this tells us something else that happened in the garden, in that prayer, that night. 
Verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Now you might jot this down because that's a strange phrase to non-Jewish folk and to non-first century people. We don't understand. What do you mean the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places? Lines there is specifically boundary lines. So the boundaries have fallen to me in pleasant places, meaning what? It's a wordplay on land inheritance, which meant everything to the Jew. The, The land, the inheritance, the allotment, if you will, is beautiful. What's given to me, he's he's using this picture of a land inheritance and saying, my inheritance is absolutely beautiful. It's marvelous. It's, It's pleasant. It's part of this cup. The cup of his inheritance. And that cup, listen, is what he wants to share with you. And this is so significant because Jesus is praying this in the garden. He sees this in the garden. Isaiah 53.11 tells us as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he's, as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus saw something in the garden that allowed him to say, yes, I will drink the cup of wrath. He saw something in the garden that allowed him to press through the blood dripping from his brow. That allowed him to stand up at the end of the prayer and be counted as one who would be sacrificed for all mankind. He saw something. He saw you. And you are the pleasant and beautiful heritage that he describes in Psalm 16. The lines, the boundaries have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage is beautiful to me. His heritage is you and me. Can you, can you grasp the love of Christ for you. I mean, it's an absolutely stunning realization here. If Jesus, in fact, did pray this in the garden, that what he saw through the blood and the tears was your face, your heart, your life. The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I've told you before, the joy set before him is you, Natalie. You are his joy. I mean, stop and think just for a moment, Eva, that he saw you that night. He's looking at your face. Less, he's considering you as he presses through this painful prayer. Jim, it was you that he saw. It was me. And when he saw you, when he saw me, Mike, when he considered you there through those prayers and considered that his inheritance, his his portion is the Lord, but he wants to share that cup with you, with me, when he comes in his kingdom. How do you place a higher value on any of our lives? than the love of Christ as we see in the garden, the pleasant lines of his beautiful heritage, are you and me. And by the way, the pleasant lines of our beautiful heritage is Jesus Christ. It's just being with Him. I've said multiple times over the last few weeks to Cheryl, I don't care what's going on in our life as long as I get to do it with you. If it's bad, if I can go through it with you, it's still good. If it's difficult, if you're there, I'm still good. If at the end of the day, I can look over and there's my wife, I've had a good day. No matter how rough the day. Right? And at the risk of elevating my wife too high, this is, this is Jesus for us. That no matter what's happening in your life, in my life, if He's there, I can walk through that. The valley of the shadow of death, we're going to talk about that on Sunday. The rest of the psalm, now, as He expresses this, and it's an amazing thing because it's in distress... But he still is talking about his beautiful heritage. He's still talking about the Lord, his cup. And now for the rest of the psalm, he's going to give four benefits of this beautiful inheritance. Four benefits as spoken by the Christ, but also as enjoyed by his people in him. So listen to these. I'll give them to you right now. Verse 7, God's promptings are part of our inheritance. God's promptings. Verse 8, God's permanence. And if you miss these, I'll give them to you again. His permanence. Verses 9 and 10, God's preservation. 
And then finally, verse 11, God's presence. Watch these as they go by. Number one, God's promptings. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And it was on that dark night that Jesus found counsel in the Lord. That the promptings, the counsel of the Spirit of God belong to Him in the garden. They're among the greatest gifts. In fact, I would say the counsel of the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift given to a believer once we've been saved. Gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit, but the gift of the Spirit Himself to counsel and to guide the promptings of the Spirit. Imagine Jesus there in the darkness of Gethsemane, and yet the Spirit prompted Him. The Spirit counseled Him. Well, how do you know that? Isaiah 11.2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All was with Jesus. The promptings of God. And He says, And indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. My mind instructs me. Now, this is interesting because if we had a direct Hebrew to English translation of the word mind, it would read kidneys. Now, I don't know about the last time your kidneys instructed you on something. That would be a little weird. Okay, no, I'm getting that. Yeah, what? Okay, thank you. My kidneys instruct me in the night, he says. And that's the Hebrew word that's used there. Look it up. It's kilyot. My kilyot. My kidneys. What do kidneys do? They purify blood. They function as vessels of purification so that as our blood goes in and through them, it comes out pure and usable again. And in ancient Jewish thought, the kidneys spoke of the innermost being. We might say the heart. We would say my heart or my mind instructs me in the night. They say my kidneys instruct me in the night. And it sounds so strange to us, but it's a picture of the inner man, the inner woman. Here's where the prompting of the Spirit comes from. Here's where He speaks. And by the way, the counsel of the Lord is the filter to all the impurities of our lives. As our blood gets impure through the week, as our thoughts become impure, as our understanding gets rotten, as things come by and we see things and we read things and we hear things and we wish we hadn't heard them, but they're sticking in our minds, and then we, when we send that stuff through the purification of the counsel of the Spirit of God, it gets purified gets cleansed. Psalm 17, verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing that is nothing impure. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. And it's a beautiful statement that the promptings of the Lord come to me in the night. And you know what? They do. Often. And if they haven't, before you fall asleep, give them a moment. And if he wakes you up in the middle of the night, Larissa, give him a moment. Just listen. If he's speaking. Because why does he do that, by the way? And it's funny because Larissa and I, we've had this conversation how he keeps waking her up with these things, you know. Why do you have to wake me up at 3 a.m.? You know, I'm so much more awake at, you know, 10 a.m. Why does God do that? Listen, he will. He often will prompt you in the night. If you'll listen. Why? Because that's the only time we're quiet anymore. It's the only time we're not, the TV's not on, the radio's not on, something's not in our, our headphones aren't on, people aren't talking to us, things aren't going on. It's in the night when we're quiet and when we're waiting. The noise, the traffic of the daylight hours. And God's saying, hey, hey, Rick, hey, Rick, just a minute, Lord, I'm really, I got to take care of this over here. And then I get into my room. The light goes out. And I lay back. And often it's the first time all day long that I'm quiet enough to hear God go, How you doing, buddy? (laughs) What's going on, Rick? I have some things I'd like you to pray. It's the time that I know I'm I'm heard and I can hear. Listen, when we're quiet and waiting, His counsel comes. When we are clamoring and rushing, we're not going to hear Him. 
said in Isaiah 30, you're, going, you're all going to ride off on horses. Ride, ride, you say. You know, he said, no, no, in, in repentance and rest. It's your salvation and quietness and, and trust is your strength. That, that, that's where you're going to hear from me. Psalm 63, verse 6 says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. This is not a new concept, my friends. This goes back to David. It goes back to the ancients. That some of the best hearings of God will happen in the quiet of the night. And so the promptings of the Lord, verse 7. Secondly, God's permanence, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You know what's marvelous? Jesus emerged from the Garden of Gethsemane unshakable. It's a one plus one here. Goes into the garden. He's quiet before the Lord. He sees the Lord as His permanency, as His stability. And as He exits the garden, He knows God is at His right hand. What can man do to me? What's the worst that they can do? He knew he was about to experience the worst that they could do. And yet, because of the permanence of God, we see Jesus just rock solid. Listen to this. You don't even have to turn there. But but John 18 tells us right after this time of prayer in the garden. John 18 verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Okay, what? Jesus knowing the distress that was about to crash into him. The arrest, the unjust trials, the crucifixion. Knowing this, he went right into it. He didn't pull back. He didn't rush up over the Mount of Olives to hide out in Bethany. They didn't catch him cowering. No, John says, and John was there, he went forth. And he said to them, here come the armored guard Led by Judas. And he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, "Uh, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, wow! Think about how powerful you would have to be to say to a Roman garrison, I am, and they all fall down. And John says that's what happened. I can imagine John, 60 years after the fact, writing his gospel and remembering that moment and thinking that was just so bizarre. Jesus comes out of prayer, goes straight to the Roman guard, says I am, and they all hit the ground. Like they're terrified of him. And therefore he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I told you that I am. (laughs) So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. And I encourage you sometime to do this. Go through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus and notice how stable he is. Notice the presence of mind in Jesus as he faces everything that they throw at him. Notice how calm He is. How measured His replies. And what you will see of Jesus is exactly what was prophesied. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. And by the way, that's a weird thing. Sheep are not silent before the shearers. That's all they're doing. They're noisy, ridiculous beasts when they're getting shaved. <laughs> You're taking my wool. And Jesus said not a word. Totally stable. In complete control. 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I couldn't do that, folks. If people were making fun of me and spitting at me on the cross, I'd be spitting right back. I'd be like, nice hair, loser. Do they do men's cuts there too? Ah, you know. Jesus. Total control. Total calm. While suffering, Peter says, he uttered no threats. Peter knows he was there. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Again, what gave Jesus the strength to come out of Gethsemane and into the onslaught of cruelty? The Lord before him. The Lord at His right hand. God's 
permanence. Apply that to your life. What is your stability? What's your permanence? I mentioned my wife before. I love Cheryl. She does provide a sense of calm in what can sometimes be a crazy world of mine. But you know what? She is not my stability. And I've told you before, I learned that about five and a half, five or six years ago now, when she was sick unto death in CCU at the hospital, and I thought I was going to lose her. And God said very clearly to me, Rick, your faith is in the wrong person. She is not your stability. I am. Is it your spouse, those of you who are married? Is it a parent who's your stability? A job? Oh, as long as I've got this, everything's going to be good. Well, the job may go away. Is it a home? See, all these things that we think are so permanent and so stable, they're all impermanent, they're all transient, they will all fail us. But not Him. And so part of our inheritance, part of the promise, and what Jesus so leaned into here, along with the promptings of God, is the permanence of God. And number three, the preservation of God, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And here's how. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And that can't be David talking. Because David rotted. (laughs) His tomb is in Jerusalem today. Peter points that out. Paul points that out. He is rotting in the grave today. David is not the one speaking here. Jesus is the Holy One who did not undergo decay by God's Preservation, And by the way, note that that was the original prayer back in verse 1 of Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And now down in verse 10, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Preservation. And if you follow the prayer through, I mean, Jesus' faith was rock solid, right? Sometimes mine isn't. But you know what happens if you pray a prayer like Psalm 16? You pray your way into faith. Often that's exactly what prayer is. It's me praying my way into faith. I, and I can tell you honestly, I will begin prayer sometimes with very little faith. I will begin prayer talking to God going, I don't even know if I... Okay, I don't, I'm, if you can help me, I hear myself saying, and then I remember, oh wait, He can. <laughs> if. And then I hear myself say, I believe, help my unbelief. And as I pray faith comes and in this prayer he prays his way into the confidence of preservation by the promptings and the permanence of God so if your faith is weak if you're not even sure if God's listening that is the best time to pray sometimes we don't because we think well I just don't understand it's not going to do me any good I'm not even sure if my heart's in it well get your heart in it how do I do that just start praying I think some of the best prayers begin, Lord, I don't even know if you're listening right now, but... And then you start to pour out your heart. And it is remarkable how as you pray, faith comes. And you start to realize, He's listening. He's hearing. Therefore, Paul writes about the preservation of God. And remember, Jesus was preserved. He never underwent decay. I think that's interesting because He was yet three days in the grave. Three days in a culture where there were no Twinkies, you could start to see decay. (laughs) Now in our culture, it it takes about 37 years before I think decay starts to happen because of all the preservatives in us. But no, in that day, three days, you might start to see a little... Jesus did not decay. It's part of the miracle of the body of Christ in the tomb. And of Jesus' resurrection, he did not see decay. He rose from the grave, and Paul writes, because of that, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. God will preserve you. The promptings of God, the preservation of God, the permanency of God, and finally, verse 11, God's presence. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. 
God's presence. Or you could say God's pleasures because it's one and the same. Oh, if we can grasp this, that there is no greater pleasure than the presence of God. And we, we, we can only grasp that to a degree now in this life. But I'm telling you, according to this word and according to our faithful God, simply being in His presence will be pleasure untold. We can't even imagine how awesome, how amazing, how overwhelming, how satisfying. Let me read verse 11 again. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And Kidner says, this verse is unsurpassed for the beauty of the prospect it opens up in words of utmost simplicity. It is a simple thought, but it is overwhelming. You will make known to me the path of life. Why is it called the path of life rather than the destination of life? Because once you get on this path, it never ends. It is a path of living. It is an eternal life. And it leads without a break, mind you, it leads into God's presence and on into eternity. And here's the thing, the greatest pleasure we can or will ever know will be in the presence of God. It is worth waiting for. There is nothing on this earth. There is no pleasure that you or I can or will ever experience here that compares to the pleasure of the presence of God. He says there's fullness of joy there. Fullness of joy. That word fullness in the Hebrew means abundance. It means a satiation. The word, it's soba. And soba in the Hebrew is a word that literally means you are filled to your heart's content. You are stuffed. You are just, it's, it's Thanksgiving afternoon. Where you're sitting back, the game's on, you're a little drowsy, and you're just going, yeah, baby. And someone says, you want another piece of pie? And you're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I do. I am just so at peace and full. And that's what he's talking about. It's fullness of joy. It's abundance. In the 80s, we would have said full-on joy. It's what he's promising. Well, Psalm 16, interesting that it begins with a refugee and it ends with an heir. It begins with one crying out. It ends with one absolutely assured. It is a Savior psalm because as I said to you, I believe this is Jesus praying. But listen, if you will follow the path of life, if you will follow after Jesus, Psalm 16 becomes about you. And you will find yourself going from refugee to redeemed heir. You, like Jesus, will know the presence of God and the pleasure of that presence. And by the way, that's why I began with Psalm 8. I didn't want to just kind of tuck it in there to a study. But Psalms 8, finally fulfilled, is us walking the path of life. It's having been resurrected and in our exaltation before the Lord. And the one place where we clearly do see Jesus, and turn back to Psalm 8, The place that we see Jesus clearly in that psalm is in verse 4. Listen to this. What is man that you take thought of him? That is that you think about him. Do you know that here and now, tonight, he's thinking about you? This isn't just us thinking about Jesus. He's got his eyes on you right now. He is thinking about you, thinking about me right now. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And that word care for in the Hebrew, pakad, literally is translated visit. What is the son of man that you visit him? He has already. He visited us once. He came to this earth. God took thought of mankind and visited us. And He is yet mindful of us, but my friends, He will soon visit again. And when He does, we will be caught up in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Full on joy. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for the psalm. 
And it is remarkable to me, Lord, to recognize that as we read Psalm 16, if in fact this is Jesus praying in the garden at the time of such immense distress, we hear such glorious praise, such amazing trust, such absolute peace. And that peace, Lord, we recognize is in You. In Your promptings as You speak to us and as You as you counsel us. And in Your permanence as You are the stability for our lives no matter how wild things might get. In that permanence and in the preservation as You take us from one day to the next and on into eternity. Lord, we find our trust in You, knowing that one day we will know and experience Your presence. Thank You, Lord, for the reminder of these things. Encourage, Lord, fellowship tonight. Comfort those who need to be comforted. Strengthen those who are feeling weak. And Lord, continue to lead us by the gentle promptings of Your Spirit, even here in this night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.